Open your Bibles with me today to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. It is good to be back with you here this week. I was not here last week. I had the opportunity to go with Riley Weaver, our global impact minister, to Monterey, Mexico. Our church partners with some church planters there in the city of Monterey. It's a city of about five million people. And uh, this group of church planters, let me tell you, it was uh, so encouraging and so humbling to see how they are faithfully working uh, with with joy and love and service, uh, living in humble circumstances to spread God's word. And they have a vision to reach the whole city of Monterey for Jesus Christ. And we sat in multiple churches this week and watching the gospel take root in people, young and old and rich and poor. It was a beautiful experience. Experience. And as a result, I have two things that I want to say to you today in regards to the work in Monterey. First one is this, keep giving. Uh, Some of the money that you give every week goes to support these men and their families who are working to plant churches in Monterey. Yeah, sorry, pardon my terrible selfie-taking skills, by the way. Um, But these are some of the people that I was with last Sunday, and that is in a church building that uh, the foundation was dug by people from PCC, and the roof was put on by people from PCC, and money from PCC goes to that church to help them plant more churches. And that's just one of several churches in Monterey with that same story. So keep giving, because the money that you give really does make a difference. You may never see see the impact that it has uh, during your earthly life, but I am confident that when we get to heaven, there will be people in eternity that are there, partially because of the money that you gave. So keep giving. And secondly, keep praying. These people taught me how to pray this week. They have a big, bold vision. They want to see 50 Christian churches in Monterey in the next 20 years. And that is an impossible vision in a place like that if God does not step in. So they are praying boldly and constantly for God's power to intervene and take over and to set that little church planting network on fire and to spread his love throughout that city. Uh, We've been going through this sermon series now talking about how God is seeking and saving the lost. And I don't know if you've heard, but Jesus is alive and he's hard at work in Monterey, Mexico, seeking the lost. So keep giving and let's just take a minute right now and let's pray for those people. King Jesus... We are so grateful that you have uh, called us to be a part of your family. And we're also grateful that your heart is not just for us, but that you have a heart for the whole world, that every person is made in your image, and that you desire for all people to know you and to come to a saving knowledge and a a life-giving relationship with your son, Jesus. So I pray for our partners in Mexico. Um, I pray for their gatherings, even here on this same morning, um, that you would fill them with your spirit and that the lost would be found in those churches, and that you would empower those churches with the right people, the right leaders, the right resources to be able to plant more churches. And I pray that Monterey, Mexico, will become a city known for shining bright for the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the work of those men. So keep us faithful here, doing whatever we can to empower them and to spread your gospel here in Hendricks County. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I loved being in Mexico with Riley. I really did. Uh, I'm still full from it. Those people know how to cook, okay? I'm going to have to fast for like a week. But to be honest, I was really ready to come home too. You guys have felt that when you're traveling. It's good to come home. I missed being home. There's something about when you walk in the doors of your house and you see your people there and your whole body just kind of exhales, you know? (sighs) Finally, I'm home. Dorothy had it right when she clicked her heels and she said, there is no place like home. Home is where we belong. It's where we are fully known and fully loved. Home is where we can let our hair down and be ourselves. Home is a good place to be. And yet, 
if we're being totally honest with ourselves, most of the time our earthly homes never really fully satisfy us. Even our quality time with family, it always leaves us longing for something a little bit more. We're never quite at rest, even in our earthly homes. Maybe your home is a home like the home that we'll see in this story, a broken home. A home where sometimes relationships are complicated and where sometimes the quality time is not the quality that you wish that it was. And so most of the time we will spend our lives here on this earth trying to make our earthly homes, our earthly families better and yet we'll never quite get there because the story of our lives is a story of longing for an eternal home. The story of the Bible is a story of people looking for home. And today, this story, one of the most well-known stories of all time in Luke chapter 15, is a story of looking for home. And yet the home is broken. The story begins with a shocking request. A shocking request. Look in verses 11 and 12. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So we're introduced to this boy here at the beginning of the story. And this young man, he's living the Mayberry dream. He has everything he could want. He's got everything he needs. He's home. He's got a family who loves him. His needs are taken care of. His future is secure and in store. But it's not enough for him. He wants more. So he decides to take that home and to break it with a shocking request. You see, he's the younger of two brothers, which means that as the younger brother, he would be entitled to one-third of his father's estate upon his father's death. But in a scandalous turn of events, this son goes up to his dad, and he asks for his share of the inheritance now, effectively saying, drop dead, dad. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want to get what's coming to me, except I want it now. Ouch. That was a shocking request. And it was met by a shocking response. The original listeners would have heard what this boy asked, and they would have known just what the father was going to say. That kid is cruising for a bruising. He is on the fast lane to pain. Oh, you want to get what's coming to you? I'll give you what's coming to you, the father would have said. But instead of chewing him out or kicking him out of the family, in another shocking turn of events, look at what the father says. He says, apparently, yes. And he divides his estate between his sons. Now, you have to understand just how shameful this would have been for the father to do that. It's not like he had a bank account of cash that he could make a withdrawal from. No, his assets would have been land and goods and livestock. So in order to liquidate those assets and divide them up, they would have had to be sold. And you couldn't just sell them on eBay or Craigslist. You'd have to sell them to the local townspeople. So everybody in the village knows what this rebellious son is doing to his father. They would know about this boy who took his dad's chickens and cows and fields and exchanged them for money. They would know about this rebellious son who took the family heirlooms. They took uh, his mother's fine china and his granddaddy's gun and his dad's pocket watch and his grandma's knitted quilts and sold them like they meant nothing. This was incredibly shocking, shameful, scandalous what this son did. This prodigal son, he committed treacherous rebellion And it may seem far-fetched to us. It's a different culture, different time, different story. It's hard to relate. But ultimately, this rebellion isn't as unfamiliar to us as we might like to think it is, is it? You see, this story 
is our story. Back in the beginning, at the beginning of the Bible, our story begins, and we had everything that we needed in the Garden of Eden. We were home. We lived in perfect peace, and yet we wanted more. And so we bucked up under the Father's authority, and we rebelled. And it's easy to blame Adam and Eve. Come on, why'd you have to eat the apple, right? It's easy to think that, but let's not blame them, because ultimately, we've all done this. That's what sin is. It's this rebellion. Sin is us looking at God, our Father, and saying, no, I can do better. I want more. I'll do it my way. Drop dead, Dad. And so we shattered paradise. We got ourselves lost. We broke away from our true home, away from our Father. And so the Bible is a story of these people. It's a story of us wandering around in exile, trying to find our way home. By the way, notice here in the story that the father didn't stop this boy from running away. If you want to choose to run away and get lost, God will let you. He's courteous. He's not going to make you love him. And if you do run away in rebellion, if you do seek joy and satisfaction and pleasure outside of Jesus Christ, it won't last. I promise. Those of us who have run away know that by now, don't we? I have a friend who says that sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin always promises freedom, but it always brings us slavery. Oh, sure, it may look fun and enticing, and it may be fun for a little while, but then you'll find yourself more shackled and more lost than ever before. It's like Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34 Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave. To sin. Because look what happens to this boy when the money runs out. Verses 13 through 19. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So in the midst of his rebellion... This son reaches the point of repentance. He comes to his senses. Now, it, it, it took pig slop to bring him to repentance. Now, a pig slop is edible, I guess, but only as a last resort, really. And you have to understand, too, that pigs were an unclean animal for the Jews. So this job that this little Jewish boy is doing is the lowest of the low. It'd be like working minimum wage after hours, getting paid in cash under the table with clean porta potties Okay, that's not a promising career. And the listeners to this story are thinking, finally, that scoundrel, he got what he deserves. But look what it says. He came to his senses. You know, when you're flat on your back and there's nothing you can do but just look up to God, that's a good place to be. This boy came to his senses. Finally, it clicked for him. 
Some people go through their whole lives and they never come to their senses. They never realize the futility that they're living in. They never realize the slavery of their sin. They never realize their own helplessness. Have you come to your senses yet? This boy comes to his senses and he repents. He thinks, you know, I'll I'll, I'll go back. I'll try to be one of my father's hired men, a a contract worker who earns a a, a wage. This boy, uh, he knows that he has no chance of getting back into the family. No, no. But, But maybe, just maybe, if he could earn a little money and begin to pay back his debt, maybe. So he goes from rebellion to repentance, and then he goes to return. Look at what verse 20 says. So he got up and went to his father. When this boy comes to his senses, he decides to return home. And there are some of you today who have children, grandchildren, or spouses, or loved ones who are far from home. They've run away from God. And maybe you've talked with them, and maybe you've prayed with them for years, and it still doesn't seem like there's any progress. Don't give up hope. It's not too late. You never know when they may come to their senses and return home. Keep praying because God loves it when prodigal sons return home to him. So don't give up yet. In fact, the story of the Bible is a story of God calling his prodigal people to return home to him. God says through the prophet Isaiah, he says, I have swept away your offenses like a a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me. I have redeemed you. He says through the prophet Joel, return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Can you feel the heartbeat of our God there? Maybe you've run away. I mean, sure, you're here. Looks like you're following Jesus on the outside, but you know you're not living how you should. Maybe God's been prompting you and convicting you, and you've been putting him off. For too long. Maybe today for you it's time to repent. Maybe today for you it's time to confess. Maybe it's time to come to your senses and to return home. God's heart longs for lost children to return to him. That's the nature of this great God that we worship. He is lavish with his grace. He is over the top in his mercy. We call this parable the parable of the prodigal son, but perhaps it would be better called the parable of the prodigal father, because the word prodigal doesn't necessarily mean lost or runaway like we like to think it does. That's how we use it most of the time in this culture, but that word prodigal actually means extravagant, reckless, wasteful. Some of you in here today are savers with your money. Good for you. And some of you in here are spenders with your money. If you're one of those people, if your money burns a hole in your pocket and is gone as soon as you get it, then you may or may not be prodigal, (laughs) extravagant, reckless, wasteful. And this God that we worship is a prodigal God. He is reckless and extravagant with his grace and with his forgiveness. His mercy is burning a hole in his pocket. He just can't wait to shower blessings all over people who don't deserve them. 
He's a God of restoration. Look at what happens in verses 20 through 24. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and punched him in the face and told him to never show his ugly mug around that town again. That's what should have happened, right? That's what the son deserved. Look what the father does. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This father comes home, and he runs out to his boy. Now, that was scandalous. Men of that culture, they didn't pick up their robes and bare their legs and run like a little boy. No. But this father, he throws honor to the wind because his son has come home. And they meet face-to-face in what should be a tense moment, but the father just ignores the mud caked all over the boy and the stench of the pigs and the tattered clothes and the unshaven face, and he throws himself on his son's neck and he kisses him with joy. And then before the son can really even get going with his repentance speech, the father interrupts him and says, oh, you wanted to live the party life, did you? I'll show you a party. I mean, of course. Who wouldn't say that to their runaway child and come home? Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, I, I, shouldn't we let him apologize a little bit? Let him grovel here for a minute. Let him soak in the weight of what he's done. Make sure he understands the gravity of his actions. Welcome him back, sure, but I mean, put him on probation for a few months at least. But no, this God that we worship is in a hurry to show grace. He can't wait to shower mercy on people. And we should be the same way. The father says, no, no, I want this restored as quickly as possible. He knows he messed up. Let's get on with this thing. Be quiet. I'm not going to take you back as my servant, but I will take you back as my son. This son, he couldn't earn his way back into the family like he thought he could. And neither can we. It was simply given to him. It was a grace gift. The father just wraps his son in love when he doesn't deserve it. He says, bring the best robe and put it on him. You understand, that was probably the father's own robe. That meant he was restored to his standing in the family. Put a ring on his hand. That would have been the family signet ring. That means he was reinstated to sonship. Put some shoes on his feet. Servants didn't wear shoes. Sons did. The sooner we recognize our sin and repent and come home to our Father, the sooner you and I are embraced by grace and adopted home as children of God. Did you notice what the Father said about his son? He said that he was dead and is alive again. Notice the resurrection element there. Sin kills, but grace gives new life. Scripture says repeatedly that we were dead in our sins, but now we are alive in Christ Jesus. So no matter how far away you are today, come home. No matter how far you've run, come home. No matter what you've done, 
come home. No matter the guilt you feel over who you've become, come home. No matter the shame because of your past, come home. Because the Father stands ready to welcome you back and to shower you with his grace. It's like Paul says in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And if you want to know what kind of a father you're coming home to and what God is doing in the world, I'll tell you, he's bringing prodigal children back home. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He's a God of restoration. And when lost children come back home, God doesn't just restore them begrudgingly. Fine, you can come back in, I forgive you, just this once. No, God... God loves this part. He's so excited about sinners coming home that he just throws a massive party. Heaven goes crazy when sinners return home to their father. You guys talked about that last week. Tell me, who's the biggest party person you know? I'm not much of a party guy, to be completely honest with you guys. Uh, I get nervous at parties. Sometimes big groups of people kind of freak me out a little bit. Great job. I don't know why I'm a preacher, to be honest. Um, But uh, most of the time, if I'm having a birthday party or something, I like something simple and quieter, you know, just kind of where I can just exhale a little bit. My wife is the opposite. My wife is a total party person. She loves parties. But even she's not the biggest party animal I know. God is. Because when we are welcomed home to our Father, we are welcomed home to a feast. This Father, He slaughters the fattened calf. That was a big deal. Meat was an expensive delicacy. They didn't have it very often. It was saved for a very special occasion. And this fattened calf probably could have fed the whole village. So the whole town shows up to the Father's house where there is grace and forgiveness and food to spare. You know, oftentimes I think we have a poor picture of heaven in the church. I think sometimes we think that heaven is just going to be kind of floating around up there in the clouds with the angels strumming our harps and singing our way through the hymnal in the angel choir. We think that Gabriel's going to get up and say, all right, everybody open your hymnals to number one. We're going to sing all the way through, and when we get done, we're going to start over again. All four verses, no skipping the third verse. And yeah, we're going to be worshiping in heaven, absolutely. But heaven is going to be a real place, a real new earth with real bodies, and we're going to have real food. Revelation chapter 19 says that we're going to be at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Heaven is a party. Last week, my wife Rebecca's grandfather passed away. His name was Bud Betts. He was a simple, strong, God-fearing man in the tiny country town of Tyro, Kansas. Uh, he and Grandma had just celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary. An incredible legacy. I wonder what Grandpa's seeing right now. I wonder what he's doing. And I don't know for sure, but I do know this. He is finally fully home in the place he's always longed for, with the person he's always longed for. He's home, and that's the heaven home that we're headed for, the kind of heaven that throws a party when sinners return. And until we get there, for now... It's our job to make this church a sneak peek of that heavenly home, a preview of coming eternal attractions. We're called to make this a place that parties when prodigals come back. That means that when prodigals rebel, but they come to their senses and they repent and return, it's our job in this church to help restore them and rejoice and welcome them with open and loving arms, even when they smell like pigs. 
There's a preacher named Todi Campolo who tells of a time a few years ago when he was speaking at a conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. He checked into his hotel and he tried to get some sleep, but unfortunately, his internal clock woke him up at 3 a.m. The city was dark and quiet, but Tony is wide awake and he's hungry. His stomach is growling. So Tony writes this. He says, up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter, and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon, but it was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I said I wanted a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and then grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. As I sat there, munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place, and I was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? Tony writes, when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left, and then I called over the fat guy behind the counter, and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. She comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday, I told him. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for here, right here, for her, right here, tomorrow night? A cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he answered with measured delight. That's great. I like it. That, that's a great idea. Calling to his wife, who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, Hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday, and he wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room, all bright and smiley. She said, that is wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind, and nobody does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. <laughs> so at 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I'd picked up some decorations at the store and made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. <laughs> it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. <laughs> At 3.30, on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. 
Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. And as she was led to one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. And then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. (laughs) And after an endless few seconds, he did. (laughs) Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake, and then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay if you want to keep the cake, keep the cake, take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. Can I, I want to take the home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. So she got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the holy grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. And when the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But right then, it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments where just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment, and then he answered, No, you don't. (laughs) There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Jesus came to build that kind of church. A church that throws parties for prodigals. A church where sinners can come home. We're getting ready to come and take communion. And remember the open arms of Jesus who welcomed us prodigals back. Because this is our story. We rebelled against the Father And we squandered our inheritance. And we ran away from home. And there was no way that we could come back on our own. So the father sent his son to experience poverty so that we could become rich. He sent Jesus to be exiled so that we could come home. And even while we were far away, the promise for us is this, Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were lost, but Jesus is the way. We were ignorant, but Jesus is the truth. We were dead, 
but Jesus is the wife. And now through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can finally come home. Let's sing together.